prayer. Heavenly Father, how you hold us fast. And to think of the power of the cross that we're able to meditate on is a joyful thing. Father, may you produce that assurance in the hearts of every believer this morning. The assurance that you will hold us fast, that the power of the cross has ensured our salvation. But Father, for the unconverted here this morning, please help them to see that they have every reason to tremble before you. Would you open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful and glorious truths from your word. And now, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, it is a joy to be here with you all this morning. There is something special about worshiping together at TMU. When the whole body of PBC can be together, it, it truly is a joy. Uh, at the same time, for me, it's special being back here because this is where I attended. I, I took Greek over there and uh, took my Romans class over there. I met my wife here. I met my father-in-law like right there, right there during a play. This is a special place to me. This is also where I worked security for about two years up until last fall. So last fall, around this time, if you were to be stalking me, you could have found me in the middle of the night walking around uh, these very halls. Um, sometimes when I worked security, certain things made me more cautious or on edge. The noises that you hear at 3 a.m. can make the hair on the back of your neck stand straight up. I mean, it's usually just the air conditioning units. You know, you go into a building and the air conditioning goes on and like your heart stops, you're done. Um, or you open the door to a building and the pressure causes some, some door in the building to slam. And again, in the middle of the day, that's fine. But at three o'clock in the morning, your heart stops and you're done. At <laughs> uh, one time, at the middle of the night, I'm walking right here on Quigley and all of a sudden, I hear this loud, piercing scream. And it was similar to the sound my two-month-old makes when she hasn't had anything to eat and she's ready to feed. It's that piercing scream. And uh, the insecurity gripped me immediately. And you think, someone's dying. I'm dying. There's a mountain lion that's about to get me or something like that. And in, in that moment of insecurity, uh, with a beating heart, I turned to find that the cause for my insecurity was this screeching owl <laughs> staring at me in the trees. And you don't, you don't want to be an insecure security guard. That's a, <laughs> that's a contradiction. And there I was. So while security guards do face many threats, I, uh, I was scared of the owls, apparently. I also didn't like the black widows or the skunks. I was chased by a skunk once. You can ask me about it later. <laughs> Nevertheless, for Christians, more often than not, we live our lives trembling in our spiritual boots, insecure concerning the love of God, insecure about our eternal security. Now, this is not a laughing matter. One of the most consistent conversations I had here as an RA, and which I have as a youth director, is the, is the conversation of assurance. And it's the question, can I really really be secure in the love of God? And with that question in mind, I want you to turn to Romans 8 if you're not there already. And we're going to be reading verses 31 to 39. And as we read our text and evaluate Paul's reasoning concerning the security 
of a believer in the love of God, I want you to pay attention to what God has revealed to us there. Beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? This is a wonderful text. I would like to compare what Paul is doing here uh, to that carnival game that you've probably played. It's the one where you're standing behind the booth and there's, there's th- those boards, those cardboard pieces standing up and you have an air gun and you have to shoot each one down. And that is in a sense what Paul is doing piece by piece in this text, shooting down those potential threats, uh, shooting down those arguments against our security. And he is not just doing this to win an argument but to win souls, specifically to win those who are already saved into understanding and believing in the security that we can have in Christ. In this text, Paul would expose the potential threats for our security so that we would cling with absolute assurance to God in Christ. And you've seen in the sermon outline, I've broken up for you five threats to our security. Now, as a side note, I personally don't like when sermons go over three points. I'm a three-point kind of guy, but I've got five points because I think the structure of this passage demands it. And so we're going to look at the text as it's laid out before us. And, And looking at that first verse there, look down to 31. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the first question Paul asks as a question of response. What then shall we say to these things? How should we respond to these great and glorious truths of God's salvation? But for us, this morning, we have only parachuted. We we have only parachuted atop this glorious mountain that is Romans chapter 8. Amidst the mountain range that is the epistle to the Romans. We're, We're only parachuting in. So what is Paul talking about? What is he saying are the things that that cause us to ask, what shall we say to these things? Well, to be exhaustive, the whole gospel in the book of Romans. And beginning in chapter 1, we see that man's problem is not intellectual or, or, or even racial, we see in chapter 2. Intellectual, it's not that man just doesn't have the right information, it's that man has the right information in general revelation, but he suppresses the truth in, in unrighteousness. And his problem is not racial it's or, or privilege focus. It's not that he wasn't a Jew uh, or a person's not a Jew and that's why they're condemned. It, it, it is a universal issue, man's problem. It's spiritual, it's moral, and it's damnable. 118, for the wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And nevertheless, we read that God's solution is the perfect Jesus who lived, died, rose, and ascended, making a way for sinners so that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. This faith in Christ removes our sin and guilt, makes us righteous, gives us access, beholds the Christ, and unites us with Christ. This union to our new master turns us from sin, although the law reveals the utter sinfulness of our hearts. Nevertheless, no Christian is under God's wrath as he still fights and flees from sin because Jesus bore that wrath on the cross. So the Christian now lives not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. This Spirit enables us to live the Christian life, gives us life, helps us kill sin, leads us, cries within us, bears witness to us. And with creation and Christians, the Holy Spirit groans within us, interceding for us in our prayers. Because as Paul says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And even in sufferings, believers will experience it. And they also groan with creation for renewal. And our Heavenly Father uses all these situations for the good of believers to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. This brings Him glory according to the eternal purposes of God. That is to say, he conforms every believer to Jesus because he chose them beforehand to not just save them, but again, to make them look like Jesus Christ. It was not because he foresaw that they would have faith, but because he would give them faith to conform them to Jesus. So, in light of all of that, we can confidently say that all he chose will enter heaven. None inside of the elect of God will be lost. None outside the elect of God will be found. And all of this to the praise of his glory and grace. And then we get to 31. What then shall we say to these things? How should God's work to save rotten sinners according to his sovereign purposes affect the security of believers? And Paul answers this rather umbrella question with five questions that block by block remove any conceivable threat against a believer's security. So let's look at that second half of verse 31. Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? The first threat is the threat of opposition. Again, if God is for us, or better yet, since God is for us, who can be against us? What enemies could we possibly have? And now perhaps you hear that and think to yourself, well, Zach, what enemies could I have? Who could be against me? I don't know. How about Satan, the world, the flesh, the liberals, the Bruins? Uh, the government, the culture, the religions, of course there's enemies uh, that are opposing us. They're everywhere. And it's not a matter of whether or not we have enemies. That's not what Paul's saying. It's a matter of whether or not we have someone stronger than our enemies. Isn't this what the Philistines thought when they had Goliath? Their text might have read, if Goliath is for us, who can be against us? And so when, when terrorists persecute and slaughter Christians... God is still for us. When laws are passed against religious freedoms, God is still for us. If churches are shut down for not embracing homosexuality, God is still for us. And the gates of Hades will not stand against the church. See, the evidence of this whole book shows Christians that God is for us, and so much so that the benefits of God for us cannot be stripped away by enemies against us. In light of God for us, what enemies could threaten our security? And here's the answer to this point. Anyone stronger than God. That's, that's, that's the only person who could ever uh, impact our security or threaten our security. And there is none. 
So I would encourage you this morning, are you secure in that thought? Or, like a security guard hearing a screeching owl, are you trembling in your boots? Are are you living your Christian life secure in what God has for us in in our salvation? And I know we, we moved through that rather quickly, so I want to look at the next threat. The threat, number two, is the threat of deprivation. And looking at verse 32, it says this, He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This next block deals with our needs in the Christian life. Now, perhaps you are thinking, Zach, all of this truth is great and heavenly, but I work a nine to five, or I'm in school all the time. I'm struggling with how to live as a Christian on earth. What if I don't have what I need to live the Christian life? Very well. Let's follow Paul's logic then concerning our needs. You can remember last Sunday, Dr. Varner brought up Abraham when he was commanded to sacrifice his only son. He went up onto Mount Moriah and God stopped him and provided a ram in the thicket to die in Isaac's place. Well, God spared Abraham's son, but not his own. And we know this. The father brought his son up the mountain, laid him down for sacrifice. With Isaac and Abraham, Isaac says to his father, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? But God the Father looked on God the Son and beheld the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The Son of God prays to his father, Take this cup from me. And we don't hear the father's answer in the garden. We don't hear it, we we see it. The Father took that cup, filled with all the wrath for all the sin, for all of God's people, for all of time, and the Son drank, and He drank till the last drop. So much so that we can agree with Isaiah chapter 53, when he writes, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him, stricken by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The father gave up his son for his people. And so here Paul initiates a logical argument. The perfect and highest gave the most for the lowest and rebellious. If this then that is what he's saying. If this son, the father's only son, was not spared, given up at the last moment on our behalf, what more could God do for us? If he did this, then of course he will give us all that we need. If God gave you what you need to be saved, do you really think that he would keep, you, keep from you what you need for life and godliness? If I freely gave you billions of dollars, and one day you were, you were low on money and you asked me for pennies, You'd be, you'd be so confident that I would. I just, I just gave you billions of dollars. So it is here. We ask the question, what if I don't have what I need for the Christian life? If he gave his son to qualify you for the race, don't you think he will train and hydrate you so that you can run the race? Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. But if this threatens your security... If you say, I don't know if I'm going to get what I need to persevere, here's my question for you this morning. Does that cause you to turn to God or away from God to find what you think you need elsewhere? 
and whatever the world could be offering you. One of man's greatest problems is not that he suffers and lacks. It's that he suffers and lacks and then looks away from God elsewhere. This morning, let us consider what our needs are that God supplies for us. Do we need the truth? Yes, and we have it in the scripture. Do we need motivation? Yes, and we have it in the gospel. Do we need power? Yes, and we have it in the Holy Spirit. Do we need encouragement, fellowship? Yes, we have it in the church, and so on and so forth. Are you secure this morning that God will provide for you all that you need? With Paul then, let us shoot down the second cardboard piece and look on Jesus as the proof and fountain of our need. Threat number one, opposition. Threat number two, deprivation. Threat number three, accusation. Read verse 33 with me. It says this, who shall bring a charge, any charge, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Here we come to the courtroom imagery. So imagine yourself in a courtroom on trial, and Paul is asking this question, what if someone has the audacity to point their finger at me and identify my unrighteousness? And the answer that Paul provides us is no one. God is the one who justifies. This is a core element of the epistle to the Romans, the righteousness of God that we have through faith. This is the righteousness that God gives to us. So God is the one who justifies his elect. But question this morning, how does he do so? Well, God did not conjure up righteousness stew and force us to drink some of it. This righteousness is the very righteousness of Jesus given to me. Romans 5.1 says that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we are made righteous by faith, we have peace with God. So that's what we have. We, when we believe, we are clothed with eternal righteousness. So much to say that we are actually perfect in status, spotless in the sight of God, though we still sin. This is the meaning of he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was charged or imputed with my sin, and I was charged or imputed with his righteousness. The gavel slammed with the declaration, righteous. So if God the Father justified me, charged me with the righteousness of his Son, who can bring a real charge against me? And again, the answer, anyone who could bring a real charge against Christ. That's who could bring a charge against me. If you could bring a real charge that would stand against Christ, then you could bring a charge against me. So we think about the ones who would accuse us. Spurgeon once said, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. That is to say, you think I'm bad on the outside? You should see the inside. Well, in Christ, the reverse is true. If any man thinks well of you, do not be puffed up, for in a sense, you are better than he thinks you to be. And here's what I mean. You, you think I look good now. You should see the spotless righteousness of Christ purchased by the blood of Christ given to me. And both responses keep us from pride because we recognize we are sinful and we are broken and yet we are perfect because of Christ's righteousness given to us. So who can bring a charge against us? God justifies his elect. Threat number three is accusation. Threat number four, condemnation. And, and look with me at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, in Romans 3.26, it identifies God as just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we see that threat number three answered uh, the question of how is God the justifier? Well, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. 
But what about his justice? If he's just and the justifier, we saw he justifies us, but how is he just? God does not just turn a blind eye and zap my sin away. He, he must condemn sin. He must justly deal with all sin of all mankind. Every person's sin will be damned. For unbelievers, they will justly bear his wrath in hell forever. But what about believers? What about their sin? Who is to condemn them? Who is to sentence me guilty and damned in the sight of God? And the answer is no one. We read in our service, Romans 8, 1 through 4, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why am I not condemned? Because my sin was damned on the tree, punished on the tree, condemned on that tree. That is why Paul makes these statements. How is God both just and the justifier? He maintains his justice against my sin, not by condemning me, but Christ. So he is just. And he charges me with righteousness. So he is the justifier. Now let's follow Paul's argument for why we are not condemned here. It says that he died. Jesus died. And there the certificate of all my sin was nailed to the cross, along with all the sin of all God's people for all, all time. It says that Jesus was raised, and we know that our sin wasn't, and Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, which, which is evidence to us, according to Hebrews, that his work was tetelestai. It was complete. It was finished. And Jesus also makes intercession for us, we read in 34. He intercedes for us. In the Gospels, Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith might not fail. In John 17, he prays for the present and future believers who would, who would put their faith in them. He intercedes for us. Christian, this morning, your perseverance is based not primarily on your power, but on the power of your Savior. This is one of the reasons why we do not believe that Christians can go to hell. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. It says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And yet we have an accuser, don't we? While Jesus is interceding for us, Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Though we, we are free from charge, free from condemnation, we have one who is accusing us before God, who doesn't just accuse us before God, who accuses our own hearts. And we sing the marvelous song before the throne of God above, don't we? We sing this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Downward I look and see my hands, which try their best not to sin. Is that the line? That's not the line. Downward I look and see my sins, which try their best not to sin? That's not it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin. That is our hope. And that is why we know there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is the third and fourth cardboard piece that Paul shoots down. Christian, do you fear charges against you? 
Look to the righteousness of Christ. Christian, do you fear condemnation against you? Look to the condemnation of Christ. So Paul, what about my enemies? God for us. What about my needs? God for us. What about charges? God for us. What about condemnation? God for us. And friends, all these threats are real and dangerous if your faith is not resting in Jesus this morning. Let me ask, as you sit here, which threat is most daunting to you? Are you secure in the love of God this morning? Have you ever, have you ever heard the story of the prodigal daughter? We know about the prodigal son. Have you heard the story of the prodigal daughter? Probably not, because I made it up. Uh, <laughs> there was once a wealthy man who had a daughter. When she grew up, much like the prodigal son, she took her share and moved away. She lived a wicked life and ended up in prison. One day, her father looked up from his desk to see his secretary, handing him a note from her, asking for payment to get her out of prison. With a bitter frown, he obliged. He signed a check, and he got back to work. The daughter was released from prison, never saw her father again, and neither of them really cared. This is how some view the relationship with God. He's very far away, very indifferent. He signed a check, you prayed a prayer, and now you are good to go. And what I love about Paul's final question that he asks is that it forces us to see what is behind the rest of the threads, the threats rather. The thread of love is woven throughout the whole tapestry of God's salvation. Earlier, I said that we are parachuting onto the tip of Romans 8, the very mountain peak. And in this last question we're going to look at, this last threat, we are faced with the love of God. And if we were to mine any part of this mountain, we surely would find close beneath the surface the love of God in every part. We do not find a cold and calculating God far away, signing salvation checks and then getting back to work. We find the God of love. And not at the expense of his holiness and grandeur and glory, but in tune with those things. We learn that his is not the story of the prodigal daughter. He loves us so much that the threats of enemies, needs, accusations, charges are all eliminated by the love of God demonstrated in the gospel of Christ. And through it all, we seek to see his love more clearly, not at the expense of, but in tune with the rest of his perfections, not elevated above, but not neglected either, all to the praise of his glory and grace. So in this next question, Paul is going to ask us about our circumstances. Okay, all those things are great, but, but what about trials and suffering and, and God's love? How do those things work together? Well, let's look at those verses, verses 35 through 37. Read along with me. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, in the midst of the pain of life, can what happens to us impact God's love, or, or worse yet, demonstrate that he does not love us as believers? Well, Paul, in this section, suggests all sorts of angles on persecution concerning everything that could happen to a Christian, uh, from trouble or tribulation all the way to death. And everything in between. Could all of these things separate me from the love of Christ? He even quotes Psalm 44 at the end of verse 36. And he, he quotes it, which in context describes God's people pondering why they are suffering. 
and asking, okay, recognizing we used to be disobedient and we were punished. That made sense. But now we're seeking to obey you and we're still suffering. We're still being put to death. And the psalmist recognizes that if they are in sin and deserve it, that's one. But here they're suffering even when they seek to obey. And this is the reality of what it is to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that we are free from trial, free from persecution. Paul even says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So with Christians, persecution does not mean that God's love has diminished for us. It's not like God gives us a jug of his love when we're saved. And every time we sin, we puncture that jug until it all drains of the love of God and then we suffer because of it. That's not how that works. No, Paul's resounding no in verse 37 In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Who shall separate us? What can separate us? Nothing. We are more than conquerors. We are over conquerors. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. Why? No trial, first off, can touch us apart from God's permission. Secondly, all trials that do touch us either make us more like Jesus help us to shine as lights for Jesus, or as in the case of death, bring us into the presence of Jesus. So nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. A few months ago, my family and I went up to northern Washington to visit my wife's uh, grandparents. They have their own farm, and my two-year-old daughter, and it was months ago, she's still talking about it. She she says, Daddy, the cows, Omanopa's cows. I'm like, yes, that's right. They had cows, crops, fruit, vegetables, and we would just walk the garden each day snacking on amazing food. They also have two golden retrievers, and Lila, my daughter, loves them, but she's absolutely terrified of them, especially when they got close. So I would keep her on the ground until the last moment, and once the dogs were inches away, I would rip her up and pick her up to rescue her from the dogs. And when they were calm, I would hold my daughter in the midst of her fears And I would let the dogs come close, and we would pet them together, even though Lila was joyfully terrified. (laughs) Here is why we are more than conquerors. Either the Lord will deliver me from this moment, or he will be with me to face it, even unto death. When he lets me lead this life, he is not loosing the hounds on me to separate me from him. We are more than conquerors because God either uses all trials to make us more like Jesus, to shine as lights for Jesus, or to bring us into the very presence of Jesus of Jesus. What about, what about your circumstances? Do you feel defeated in your trials? Christian, we are not to doubt the love of God in suffering. We are to see it on display and trust in him who conquers through us and who has loved us. Let's read the, the last, rather the concluding verses from 38 to 39. Paul says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul then here moves on to discuss not the trials that happen to people because they are Christians, but what happens to people because they are humans. All these things are common to man. And, and all these pairs and extremes that Paul uses uh, demonstrate this grand thing, that there's no force in creation that can rip me from the arms of God. In fact, and this is, this is for the youth group, youth group pay attention, if you're willing to make a little bit of a stretch, you can find the infinity stones in 38 and 39. Now I got you all in your Bibles and you're looking. 
You can find him. You can find time and power and all that sort of thing. What, what do Paul and the Marvel Cinematic Universe have in common? They both recognize the strongest created powers. However, it is the, the apostle that recognizes their utter impotency in light of our union with the love of God. Now here I want to comment on Paul's persuasion. He says, I have been persuaded. I have come under the process of being persuaded of this. And I want to ask this question. How has Paul been persuaded? And by way of application, what about your persuasion? This whole text, this whole sermon, this whole book is in some sense lost on us if we do not walk away challenged to be persuaded that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet, many people are wrongly persuaded or unpersuaded, and fewer yet are rightly persuaded that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me look at those categories. Those wrongly persuaded are those who believe they are secure in the love of God and have eternal life, but they have no right to such persuasion. Their persuasion is based on a prayer, a work, inherent goodness, a crossless view of God's love. God loves everybody. God is love means God is tolerant and embracing, and they, they use, have those views, or they, they are persuaded on the basis of their emotions. I feel persuaded. Notice in this section that Paul has not provided an emotional argument for our security. He assures on the basis of logic, logic of all things. And I'll make up a word like I do for my youth group. Again, theologic, logic about God. Um, here, theologic, and, and Paul has been persuaded by that, and he would persuade your mind to think rightly about God so that your mind thinking rightly about God from there, your emotions would function rightly, and then your will would follow rightly. So Paul begins being after your mind. That's what he's after. Note that he does not first woo the emotions. He does not say, feel happy, feel assured. He does not say, if you feel unsaved, you probably are. He does not point to the subjective, but to the objective. He does not throw feelings out the window because feelings come and go. However, he he establishes truth, hoping that feelings will follow. Opposed to being wrongly persuaded, godly persuasion must be anchored in something outside of our emotions. Samuel Rutherford once said, your heart is not the compass that Christ sails by. Now, while some are wrongly persuaded, others are unpersuaded. This leads one, to one of two things. Apathy on one hand, that is, you are uninterested in the topic. You've heard it all your life, perhaps. Uh, but apathy concerning the love of God is the soil for an ingratitude. And tell me, what sin does not flow from a thankless heart? That's one part of the spectrum. The other part would be, they're not ap apathetic, they're just insecure, like the security guard. Uh, perhaps they think that one cannot be secure, that, that our security, at the end of the day, Perhaps they believe that it's determined by our free will to choose and to believe and that we will not lose our salvation as long as we keep choosing and keep believing in God. But that is not the teaching of the Bible, Romans 8, or this passage. Perhaps the unpersuaded think they can be secure, but they're only looking to their, their own lives and measuring their security uh, on the basis of whether they're, they're producing enough fruit. And because they only look there, they recognize they're not producing enough fruit, and so they're not joyful, and that joy isn't producing right fruit, and that cycle continues. 
and then they're insecure about their salvation. I'm not saying there's not a time to look at the fruit in our lives and to evaluate whether we're saved, but to be insecure concerning the love of God is to be ineffective concerning the commands of God. I'm going to be so consumed about figuring myself out and not resting in Christ. Insecurity and assurance generally is numbing to the affections, polluting to the mind, and demotivating to the will. At the least, this leads to a lack of joy in their in fruit. We must break this cycle and, and be rightly and godly, in a godly sense, persuaded about the love of God in Christ. Paul was not persuaded by inherent goodness. He renounced that. He was not persuaded by sinlessness. He rejected that. Uh, see Romans 7. He was persuaded by the very gospel that through the Holy Spirit revealed Christ to him. What, what persuaded the apostle? All the doctrine in this letter. For example, look at Romans 5, 5 through 8. It says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God's love poured into our hearts. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God poured into our hearts is God's love for us displayed in the gospel. From this fountain, the love of God for God and man and a desire to obey all the commandments of God by the power of the Spirit rightly flow. Godly persuasion is Holy Spirit perception of the gospel and faith in that gospel. That is the stronghold that Paul claims that no persecution and no tribulation can separate him from. And briefly, what are, the, what are the benefits of godly persuasion that we cannot be separated? Daily joy, eternal security, a clear picture of Christ, a deeper desire to love God and man. And this is the security that banishes all other insecurities away, from the trivial things to the real things. If I'm secure here, I'm anchored to something that cannot move me. And hasn't this been the point of each question Paul shoots down the threats to our security so that we would have a clear and lifelong picture of Christ, the fountain of our assurance. And yet we wander from the very source of our assurance. We descend the mountain of assurance and go about looking for it under every bush. We look for the subjective alone and are disheartened that we see small fruit where we want to see gardens. We must retrace our steps to the cross and once again stand and behold the sun. Don't you see the sun in every answer Paul has provided? The cross is the evidence of God for us. It is the logic of God for us. It is the defense of God for us. It is the embrace of God for us. And with Paul, let us then shoot down every threat in these verses to see the picture that is behind them all, the gospel from every angle. That's what he gets at. And if God is for us, what enemies, what needs, what charges, what condemnation, what trials could assail us or separate us? Oh, that we would rest assured in the love of God displayed on the cross. This is the soil that bears fruit. This is where we begin. Let us reap and sow here and then evaluate the fruit that flows. If you are fighting doubts at this moment, we're about to take communion. And there we take the cup in our hands and think, Ah, what enemies could I have? Ah, what, what needs could I have? Who can bring a charge against me as we take the cup and the bread? Who can condemn me? Who could separate me from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what we eat and drink to. Let me pray. O Father, may you assure all of our hearts of the love of God in Christ, yet expose the rightful insecurity of the unbeliever. To them, bring up every rightful threat to their security. May they see that they have every reason to tremble. But for uh, the saved and unsaved alike, show us that for those in Christ, all threats to our security cannot stand. Persuade us of this, that we would see each threat knocked over and banished away so that we would behold the Lamb of God. And when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, please, may your spirit help us say, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.